Back in 1971, John Lennon wrote his most famous solo hit called Imagine. Still a very popular song. I'm sure you know it. And like so many songs that were written around that time during the Vietnam War, it was a song about unity and peace. And the premise is very simple. You know it. Imagine if there were no countries, no possessions, no religion. All these things that, that so often create conflict and divide us. Well, if we could get rid of all those things, John said, we could all live in peace. If there were no possessions, then there would be no greed. If there were no religion, then, then people could just live for today. And then the world would be a much better place. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Perhaps someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. That was his dream, right? People love this song. And I guess people love the song partly because it connects us to some real deep sense of idealism that all human beings share. If we could just eliminate terrible things like injustice and inequality and greed and war, then humanity could really thrive. Now, the obvious problem, y'all, with this is humanity is the one who created all these problems to begin with, right? These are not just problems that exist somewhere outside of us. We did it. And so the reason we have racism and greed and war and so on is because our sinful human nature perpetuates these things. That's why this, always this kind of utopian idealism, it always fails, always, because it has much too high an opinion of human nature and what we're capable of. The problem is not possessions or countries. The problem is us. And as long as there's an us, we're going to have these problems. I don't mean to be pessimistic. That's just the truth. But here's my real beef with John Lennon. Imagine no religion, he says. Now, we know what he means when he says that. Imagine all the peace and unity and equality and generosity and brotherhood and social progress we could enjoy if we just left silly, divisive religions back in the dark ages where they belong. Y'all, that's, that's a very popular line of argument still today against religion in general, but especially against Christianity. Wouldn't we be better off if we could just leave all that divisive, oppressive religious stuff in the dust. What would we say in response to that? Well, y'all, I want us to see in Acts chapter 2 the very first summary description of the early Christian church. This is the first time that the Bible illustrates for us what a spirit-formed community of God's people looks like. And what we'll see is, you know, John Lennon was mostly wrong, but he also got something right. And my hope is that it will be a great challenge for us together this morning. So let me give, you know, just a little uh, refresher here about Acts chapter 2. We're at the end of this chapter, but it's one of the most power-packed chapters in all the Bible. What happened to this point in this chapter? There's been the outpouring of God's Spirit on His apostles, just as He promised. And it's caused a great deal of, of wonder and amazement throughout Jerusalem. Something's going on here. And it gives the apostle Peter the opportunity to stand up and share the gospel with a massive crowd of people, thousands. And Peter tells them that the Holy Spirit has indeed come in response to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This Jesus, Peter says, whom you crucified, 
is the Lord and Savior that God has sent for our redemption. And that very day, Luke tells us, 3,000 or so people repented of their sin, trusted in Christ, they were baptized in His name, receiving the Holy Spirit. An amazing, miraculous day. And all of that in Acts 2 happens in a single day. But then here at the end of the chapter, Luke closes by giving us not just one day, but perhaps weeks or months, who knows how long, he gives us a great big overview of the aftermath. All of the wonderful things God did that one day spilled over into the next day and the day after. And after that, a new community has been formed. Things are not the same. A community, the likes of which no one had ever seen before. And so I just want to look at the full picture for us as we start before we break down uh, into pieces this scripture. Let's look at verses 42 through 47 all at once here. What did the early church look like? Luke says, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as many one might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, as wonderful as that paragraph is, it's not designed to be exhaustive. You know, we, we don't find in this little section everything about what a church is and what a church is meant to do. But in terms of summary, this right here is as good as it gets. What Luke is describing is exactly what a community of people looks like when we are filled with the Spirit of Christ. And each element deserves its own special consideration here. So let's just work through it now verse by verse. Go back to verse 42 with me. Luke says of these new believers, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Y'all, I, I want us to see right off the bat that salvation is never merely a private, internal experience. When a person comes to Jesus, we experience a total renovation of life. I mean, look at how dramatically their priorities take shape around Jesus and His church here in Acts chapter 2. They didn't just receive a private, internal experience of spirituality. No, it changed everything. They were continually devoting themselves, Luke says. means they were totally absorbed with this. Now, it doesn't mean that they all quit their jobs and deserted their families. This isn't a cult. But I hope it's clear that what these people had experienced, it was so radical, so life-altering, that their lives actually changed in response to it. These people did not fit Christianity in. 
to the religious category that we all hold and one that needs to be filled. They didn't just make room for Jesus. Jesus took over. These people were all in. It touched every area of life. It touched their calendars, their priorities, their affections, their budgets. Everything was new. And of course, Luke tells us, and it's vital for us to see concretely what they were doing. What did they devote themselves to? Four things he gives us. He says the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, the apostles were surely teaching the crowds everything that Jesus had taught them. They were showing them how Jesus was the fulfillment of all their hopes. These are Jews who believed very firmly in what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes and promises of their Scripture. They were surely teaching them that too. And of course, the apostles would have been teaching them what it looks like to trust Jesus and obey Him as Lord and Savior. So there was teaching. Then there's fellowship. And of course, fellowship means a deep commitment to one another, to spending time together, to sharing meals together, growing in love and service to each other, encouraging and building up fellowship. Then there's the breaking of bread, which involves sharing meals together, and we'll see that again in a minute. But more specifically, Luke is probably talking here about communion, sharing in the Lord's Supper together, a unique feature of Christian fellowship. And then, of course, they were devoted to prayer, which is a callback to chapter 1, when the disciples were devoting themselves to prayer. And we preached on that a few weeks ago. Y'all, the aim of Harvest Church when we gather is simply this. And, and for all y'all, for all the ways that we fumble the ball and miss the mark as a church, we do. But my hope is, our hope, is that we would devote ourselves in like manner always to these four things. That when we gather, we commit ourselves to the study of God's Word, to fellowship, to the sharing of the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Now, the obvious threat, of course, is that when we, if we, rather, if we limit these things to an hour a week or less, then we end up, rather than being continually devoted as the early church was, we might only dabble. And we might experience some spark of the goodness of what they experienced, but not the fullness, not the flame. And so this is not meant to be something we dabble in, but that we're devoted to. And we'll circle back to this as a challenge at the end. But they were devoted. And it wasn't just a sense of diligent activity. Look at the heart behind what's going on here. Verse 43, everyone, Luke tells us, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. The Lord was doing miraculous things. We're going to see a, a, an incredible example of that next week in the study of chapter 3. But y'all, I love the first part of this verse. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. God's grace and God's presence were awesome to them. And y'all, this is not something that should feel foreign to us, this sense of awe. We can't manufacture it and we shouldn't try. But when we consider God's mercy, God's grace, God's presence, God's power... Uh, we don't whistle past things like that. We should stop in our tracks. Y'all, a, a couple of weeks ago, many of you were here. We had our first fourth Sunday prayer gathering. We'll have another one February 25th. Fifty plus people showed up to pray 
On a Sunday evening, we sang together, we confessed sin, we rejoiced in God's mercy and and His forgiveness. And I'm telling you from where I stood, at least, it was an awesome moment. And God visited us in that moment in miraculous ways. One of our young people came to faith in Jesus during our prayer time. It is an awesome thing for God's church to experience His grace together. It is not ritual. It is not going through the motions. It's not checking a spiritual box. It is awesome. Because God is real and He is really with His people. And see, something that Luke shows us here as we read, that this is not, again, not merely an experience that we hold privately. God forbid. It's an embodiment. It is an experience, of course, but it's an embodiment. It's something that shows up. And has a tangible effect. So now look at verse 44. Look at what they did. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, when Luke tells us that the believers had all things in common... That doesn't mean that there was some mandated pooling of resources happening. No one was being forced to relinquish their property. This wasn't a welfare program. What we're seeing is a genuine, transforming power of God's grace. An experience of grace where the rubber meets the road and takes tangible effect. Their faith is reshaping their values and their behaviors. So y'all, let's now take a step back with me. Let's take a quick rabbit trail here. I want you to consider this for just a minute. Every culture makes value judgments in how we distinguish between people. Some are spoken, some are unspoken, but everybody does this, okay? So depending on the culture, there are different values assigned, perhaps, to men versus women, or black versus white, or rich versus poor. Strong versus weak, popular or unpopular, attractive or unattractive, educated, uneducated, married or single, moral or immoral, uh, liberal or conservative, white collar, blue collar, and a thousand more that we make distinctions and we grant value accordingly. And so y'all like it or not, every culture does this. We esteem and honor some people over others based on the value we assign. And y'all, that could be the culture of an entire nation. It could be the culture within a middle school. We all know it's true. It doesn't matter where you go. It's what we do because it's human nature. And y'all, listen, in ancient Rome, which is the context of Acts chapter 2, they're, they're under the rule of ancient Rome. Rome, by the way, which was the, the greatest, most powerful you know, empire there ever was at the time, the most educated, sophisticated, successful people in the world. But in ancient Rome... Men were simply far more valuable than women. Masters much more valuable than slaves. This was to them the most obvious thing in the world. Equality was a myth. This is the will of the gods. Nobody's equal. This is just the way the world is. It's the way things work. That's how it went. But then one day, seemingly out of the blue, a tiny little counterculture pops into existence. A small but rapidly growing community of people who insist that God created every human being 
in His divine image. Everybody. People who believed that God's Son entered the world not as a ruler, a monarch, but as a lowly servant. He lost, as it were, all of His divine value and glory willfully and became a servant to us and died on a cross so that everybody, anybody who believed in Him without any regard for our own merits, anybody could be saved and have eternal life and acceptance with God. It didn't matter who you were or where you found yourself on the social ladder. And so here this counterculture shows up proclaiming to everyone who will listen that God offers the same saving grace to the priest and also to the prostitute. To the CEO and the cashier. One and the same. To male and female. To slave and free. Jew and Gentile. All are one in Christ Jesus. How would that change people's behavior if they started to really believe something that radical? In Acts chapter 2, who told these Christians to sell their property and give to their brothers in need? Nobody, as far as we know. They did it because they had been captured by God's grace. Something new and totally different had overwhelmed them. Grace was changing them. And you also think about anybody who, who just, by virtue of the culture or their upbringing or whatever else, they just hold a higher value, right? In this culture, it would have been a man, a wealthy man. For them, a Jewish man as opposed to a Gentile or whatever have you. Things that gave them a higher status than the rest. What does the gospel say? I come to Jesus poor in sin, not rich. I come to Jesus not high and exalted, but desperately needy, and He saves me in spite of all my unworthiness. What does that do to somebody who's accustomed to being high on the ladder? It brings them low. What does that same message do to somebody who's at the bottom of the ladder? It lifts them up. The gospel changes us. Years later, let's stay on this, this question of generosity, selling possessions, giving to the poor. Years later, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, encouraging them to give generously to their brothers in need, I want you to look at how Paul appeals to them to give their money. He could have given them a lot of good reasons to give, but here's the reason he gives right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You will spend the rest of your life trying to get to the bottom of that scripture, and so will I. That is amazing. What is Paul telling us here? It was Jesus who left the glories of heaven, emptying himself making Himself our servant, dying horribly and shamefully on the cross. Jesus took on the ugliest form of poverty we could imagine. Why did He do that? So that through Him, we might become rich. We who are poor in sin might receive His grace to forgive us. And through His poverty, we now become wealthy. We are rich in His grace. We are rich in eternal life. 
Therefore, Paul says, be generous with your money. And the scripture is clear on this also. It's one of the, it's one of the most, it's one of the clearest evidences that we are a people no longer ruled by the world's values. We are a people who identify with the cross because I see now as nothing belonging to me. Everything is a gift from God, especially the grace of Jesus. And therefore, we live generously. Y'all, if all of us were equally lost in our sin, and if we've been equally saved by the grace of God without regard for our merits or where we fall on the ladder, if that's really true, then we no longer make value distinctions like the world makes. And so the, the, the equality and unity and generosity that might just be for us nice ideals, great ideas, they are actual new realities that the Spirit produces within us. They are God's heart poured out and now made tangible in the lives of real human beings. This is how a tiny little subculture starting out in Jerusalem ended up changing the whole world. Y'all, probably everyone you know, regardless of their religious status, probably everybody you know believes very strongly in the intrinsic value of every human being, in human dignity and human rights, equality between the sexes and races. We all believe in individual liberty and compassion for the weak and the poor. We believe in orphanages and hospitals and charities. All of that came from Christianity. We think those things are just self-evident. That's, that's just the way it is. No, that came from the people of God living out the gospel. That's not Kyle's opinion. It's documented fact. And so I mentioned earlier, John Lennon was at least partly right to imagine such precious things as equality and unity and generosity. These are ideals we should all agree to and, and, and pursue, yes. But he was sadly wrong to think that in order to really have those things, we need to rid ourselves of Christianity. Y'all, the truth is, it's only through genuine Christian faith and practice that these ideals can become reality because only the Spirit of God can produce them. And we see it laid out for us here in Luke's summary. And we see how the, the chapter finishes. We just see more and more of this on display. Look now at verse 46 with me. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Isn't it so crystal clear that there's much more going on here than just a group of people who happen to share the same religion? You notice in this description the unity, the profound unity that these people share and the camaraderie day by day. Every day they're gathering in the temple and in each other's homes, they're sharing meals. There's honor. There's dignity, hospitality, sharing and giving. Luke tells us gladness and sincerity of heart. Everyone is welcomed. Everyone is cared for. Every need is met. They love each other 
And it seems pretty obvious to me that they like each other. And sometimes that's even harder, isn't it? Who wouldn't want to be a part of a community like this? And look at how the surrounding community is responding. God is giving His people favor with everybody. These believers are not doing this in secret, in a corner. They're, doing, they're living this out in public where the whole community can see how they live, how they treat each other, how they love each other. They're hearing the message of this grace and the Lord is adding to their number every single day those who are being saved. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Now there is for us, as we close, there's a challenge for sure in this. I hope also an encouragement and I want to give us both. The challenge, as I prepare for this message over the course of the week, the challenge for me was pretty obvious. Do we live anything like this? Does our Christian community reflect what we see very plainly in Acts chapter 2? Now, I say this, I think at least to some degree we do. I'm, I'm, I boast in Harvest Church. I boast in y'all. I'm proud of y'all because I feel like in a lot of ways we as a church are, are dearly loving and hospitable and gracious and we trumpet those things with joy. I'm so thankful for that. Praise God for that. But we should still read this with a great deal of aching and longing because we should all be able to see, by contrast, the places where perhaps we have neglected the Spirit's gifts to us, these great things that are available to God's people. Y'all, if God... If God calls us to be a new spiritual family, and yet by and large we function as acquaintances, then we should feel the abrasion here in reading Acts chapter 2. Something's not right. If God calls us to radical generosity, and yet we don't really know each other well enough to know what the needs even are, then we should feel that sting. Things are not right. If Jesus sends us outward to share and live out the gospel all around us, and yet most of our church activity is confined to this building, then we should feel the abrasion there. We might be doing many good things, but we have missed something critical. We've missed the heart, perhaps of what the light is meant to do. It's meant to be shown, not put under a basket. And so, y'all, I, I, as your pastor, I feel the weight of this. I hope we all do. I, I look at this, you know, it's, this scripture is like a mirror. And what I see in the mirror of Acts chapter 2 is not a clear reflection of my face. Something's there, but it's not all it could be. And we ought to feel the weight of this that the attitudes, the priorities, the love, the camaraderie, the behavior of the early church ought to be reflected in how we live. It's just meant to be. That's why we're given as a summary how precious this thing was. Y'all, there's nothing in what we just read that's foreign to us or impossible for us. And that's where the challenge, I hope, becomes an encouragement. Y'all, if we feel the weight of this, if we long for this and what it could be, I want you to know we have the very same gospel and the very same Holy Spirit that's featured right here in what we've read today. Nothing has fundamentally changed. Culture changes, sure. 
Schedules change, technologies change. There's lots of different things about our world versus the world that we're reading about today. But the essentials haven't changed. The things we need most and most fundamentally, y'all, there's nothing that God has withheld from us that would prevent us from growing more into this kind of community. Everything we need, we have. And so the application for us is it does not need to be rocket science today. We feel the weight of this, and hopefully if we're honest enough with our own hearts, we can confess where we've fallen short and missed the mark. Perhaps Acts chapter 2 scares the pants off of you because you realize if we really lived this way, I would lose some of my privacy. I would lose some of my expendable income perhaps and living more generously. And that's scary to us because we like to close the garage door at the end of the day and have our own space and our own stuff. I do. But our longing for it should be far greater than, the, than the, the silly risk of losing things that don't matter in the end. And so there's the encouragement for us. God has made this possible through His gospel and His spirit and His people. We have what we need. So could you apply this? Could I apply this this week? Yeah. I mean, think about what we just saw. Sharing meals together. You could do that today. Inviting somebody after church to have lunch together. Inviting somebody over, having people in your home. Prayerfully, starting now even, prayerfully seeking ways to tangibly bless others, to be spontaneously generous. As you hear of needs and opportunities, as you begin to pray about what you might be able to do, we can give to the efforts of the church and to those who have need. Uh, it's not rock and science. Y'all, listen, come to worship. You're here now. Praise God. Come next week. Be here. Come to D group at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Come to fourth Sunday prayer where we'll pray about these things later this month. Stop seeing yourself as merely a spectator in the work of God and see yourself as a family member in the work of God. Be a greeter. Be an encourager. Be a servant. Be a giver. It's not that difficult to step across a line and if you still need help, come find me. Come find one of our pastors or elders. We would love to pray with you about this. Y'all, the goal here is not to just give us more stuff to do. The goal is that perhaps, by God's grace, we would reorient our lives around Jesus Christ, His grace, and His new community. So, y'all, as we close, I want, I want to remind us here, it was obvious in the Scripture, nothing about this was burdensome to these new believers, was it? It was a joy. It wasn't a task list driven by overbearing apostles. It was the most natural thing in the world for those who had received the supernatural grace of God's Spirit. How else can we live? And so my hope for me, starting with me, for us as a church, is that we would increasingly do the same. That Harvest Church, more and more, would be our own little counterculture right here in Ridgeland, Mississippi, and that by God's grace, we would help change the world by increasingly shining the light of Jesus from within, more and more, without. That is the blessing we've been given to be God's people in this world. And it is a joy, not a burden. May God give us the grace to see it that way and to step across whatever lines we've created so that we might live it out. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you this morning 
that we have in Jesus Christ a Savior and a salvation that completely upends and reverses every value, Lord, of this world. That, Lord, Father, where we, where we would see and value and aspire to be strong and wealthy and successful and esteemed and affirmed and climbing that ladder, Lord, that we might be somebody in the eyes of others. Father, you sent your Son to be a nobody, a servant of all, destitute, unknown, unattractive, killed as a criminal, all that he might bear our sins in our place and forgive us and reconcile us to you. Father, thank you that you have reversed and redeemed our values. Help us to see it today. That, Father, we may humbly come together as your people with genuine love, with self-giving, with grace and forgiveness toward one another, with kindness, with hospitality, with genuine sharing of life, with confession of sin, with honesty and vulnerability, and, and the joy, Lord, of knowing that we have brothers and sisters by faith who love us as family. Father, this kind of counterculture has changed the world. And we trust, Lord, will continue to for those who will devote themselves to it, to you. Lord, will you grant us, I pray, a, just a clear vision of this and a desire for it. Lord, the conviction to see where we've missed it, but Lord, all, the encouragement to know that, Lord, it's, it's, it's at our fingertips this morning because your Spirit is with us and powerful, Lord, both to save us and transform us. Father, I, I'm asking for Harvest Church, Lord. We, we will not become all, all of this overnight. This takes time, Father. It takes sincerity. It takes intentionality. But, Lord, I do pray that we would not um, settle for less than this. I pray, Lord, we'd not just be, be happy with the status quo. Lord, birth in us more and more by your Spirit a picture of what can be. And Lord, in all the good that you, are all, all, that you have done and are doing at Harvest, there's so much good, Father. Fan these things into flame more and more and more that we might know this kind of, uh, of church, this kind of way, Lord, of being your disciples. Give us a sense of awe, Father, as we consider how truly gracious you are, how blessed we are when we look around this room. Father, we don't deserve any of this. Thank you for it. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for your Spirit. Father, uh, move us evermore in the direction, Lord, of what we've seen and witnessed this morning from your precious Word. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.